Charles uh, from Renewal West Philly preached the word for us this morning. So let's look at Romans 5, 1 through 11. I'll read for us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Good morning, uh, church. Uh, glad I can be with you on this Palm Sunday. Uh, There's some of you who uh, were at West Philly, uh, Renault West Philly, a couple weeks ago because of the storm. And so you heard this message before. Uh, but I trust that God has a purpose for you to hear this a second time. So, uh, so whether you're hearing this for the first time or second time, let's open our hearts wide to God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we dive into this passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, we bow our hearts before you as our sovereign, majestic, beautiful, reigning king over all the earth and over our lives. So now, Lord, we submit ourselves to your holy word, which we need for our souls. So this morning, we open our ears and we open our hearts. And would you take this word of yours, living and active, and encourage us and strengthen our hope and our joy and our peace in you that we anchor to you all the more uh, through this strong truth. Use me, God, in my weakness uh, to speak this message, to proclaim your truth in a manner worthy of you and in a way helpful to your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last few Sundays, uh, you have been unpacking from Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4 the glorious truth of our justification before God by His grace alone, a gift to be received by faith alone, 
apart from any of our works. Now, today we come to chapter 5, and the Apostle Paul answers this all-important question of, so what does this doctrine of justification mean for us? What is the result of our justification by faith? And I want you to appreciate how pastoral Paul is here in this passage. If you think about it, a lot of those believers in the church in Rome that he was writing to were young, young believers. And they were hearing and learning about this doctrine of justification for the first time. And so Paul was not taking any knowledge for granted. And here he spells out in detail what justification secure for them. Because they surely had all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts, such as, so this truth, this doctrine of justification sounds wonderful, but how then does God really feel about me and relate to me now? What about as I continue to struggle with sin and continue to fail God? What about when I'm experiencing suffering? How does God view me then? And what about my future? Does this truth of justification really ensure my eternal security when I face death? And even more terrifying, when I face God, the holy judge, after death? Surely, a lot of the believers in Rome had these kinds of questions and doubts. And that's why Paul spells out the astounding benefits guaranteed to us in justification. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only to secure your everlasting life. It's meant to make you certain that you have this life even now. Now, this might be obvious to you, but this is in stark contrast to, say, the Catholic teaching that no one should be assured of salvation from God until a life of proven faithfulness over the course of time warrants it. That's the Catholic notion, that you live a life of faithfulness to God and over the course of time, that proven faithfulness merits, earns assurance that you're saved. To, to any kind of notion like that, Paul says, absolutely not. You are not to be left in any doubtful misery. Rather, you are to have assurance from the very beginning of your faith in Jesus Christ of your salvation. So Paul here, with a pastoral heart, seeks to remove any uncertainty, any fear that you might have. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said of this passage, the apostle, Paul speaks as one who is extremely happy and full of joy, and that's what he wants you to be. And it's so important that we Christians are a happy people. 
that we experience the deepest of confident joy. The late preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he put it like this. He said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. There are many indeed who give this as a reason for not being Christian and for giving up all interest they may have ever had in the Christian faith. They say, look at Christian people. Look at the impression they give. And they are very fond of contrasting us with people out in the world, people who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in, whatever they may be. They shout at their football matches. They talk about the films they have seen. They're full of excitement and want everyone to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy. There's no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. Now, he lived in a different era and different time, but point taken. Now, how can we have this heavenly joy that surpasses the world's understanding, that sustains us always? It's by believing and resting in the realities of this passage. So I want us to see this morning three things that we can rejoice in. Three things, three reasons why we can always have this joy, why we can be happy Christians from this passage. First, we're going to look at the fact that we rejoice in our reconciliation. Secondly, we rejoice in our hope. And thirdly, we rejoice in our suffering. So those are uh, the three things I want us to see from this passage. First, we rejoice in our reconciliation. You see this right in verse 1, beginning of our passage, if you look there. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 11, right? That book ends our passage. What do you see there? More than that, we also rejoice. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see there, joy, right? We rejoice in God, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If there's any question as to how exactly justification, the change in verdict on your head, from being guilty, condemned, to now being declared righteous, you have any question as to how exactly justification has affected how God feels about you and how he relates to you, let these verses make very clear that you have been fully reconciled to God and you are fully at peace with him. Now, all of us in this room know what it's like to be in conflict with others. So think about what it means to be fully reconciled to someone. Especially when you 
have wronged them. Because of you, that person has had something against you. Think about what it means to be fully reconciled. It means that they no longer hold that wrong or any wrong against you. No longer do they condemn you or refuse you in any way. Instead, there's forgiveness. There's loving acceptance. There's a restoration of warmth and kindness. Thinking about the power of reconciliation, I recently came across this true story of the Taylor family. Father Jim and his daughter Denise. Denise's um, brother, Bo, he was shot and killed in 1984 at the age of 19. He was trying to score some weed in Compton, in South L.A., by a man named Ronnie Fields. Jim fantasized about bringing a gun to court and shooting that man who killed his only son. He wanted the death penalty Fields. Fields ended up being sentenced to a minimum of 27 years in prison. Now over the course of time, both Jim, who is a devout Christian, and his daughter Denise began to soften. Denise, who's a doctor, ended up working of all places in a medium security prison, treating those who were in jail for the long haul, many who were in for murder. And interacting with these prisoners humanized them in her eyes. So in 2005, 21 years after losing her brother, Denise wrote a letter to Ronnie Fields asking to visit him. And Fields agreed to it, replying in a heartfelt, heartbroken letter, saying, I am ashamed to see you though I owe your family as much, so therefore I will honor your request to visit. And in that first meeting, he fully explained what happened on that tragic day and said, I am sorry for what I took from you. I'm sorry I caused you this pain. And after that, Denise began to make periodic visits to Ronnie along with her father, Jim, And through these visits, they learned to truly forgive him and befriend him. They regularly attended his parole hearings. Now, victims' families attend parole hearings for one reason. It's so that the defendant, to make sure that the defendant, who's always the enemy, never gets out. But Jim and Denise came to these hearings to do something unheard of, and that's to fight for their enemy, Ronnie's release. Less than 1% of victims' families in the U.S. advocate for a prisoner to be released, but that's exactly what the Taylors did. For 12 years, they saw Ronnie get denied parole, but continued to advocate for their enemy turned Denise said in a statement at one of those hearings, having to come back to these parole hearings year after year only causes more pain to me and my family. I realize that Mr. Field's crime is considered to be against the state, but we are the ones 
who live the day-to-day reality of the loss of my brother Bo and also the continued imprisonment of the man responsible for his death, a sentence we can no longer support. Finally, on April 16th of last year, after 32 and a half years in prison, Ronnie Fields was released. And he said, I could still be in that prison right now, probably for the rest of my life, had they chose to oppose my parole and fight to keep me in here as hard as they fought to get me out. I'd probably die in that prison. And with the Taylor's help, Ronnie has settled into life as a free man, and he's reunited with his own family. And the friendship between the Taylor family and Ronnie Fields continues to this day. This is a picture of how God feels about you and how he relates to you, an enemy turned friend. And do you realize that justification is even greater than forgiveness? Because what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to just be acquitted? See, God doesn't just acquit you of your sin, just forgive you. Because what is being acquitted as being treated as having not done wrong? That's you are free to go. But justification is even greater than that. Because not only does God acquit you, he treats you as now righteous in Christ, righteous in his sight, as having done everything absolutely right. That's not you are now free to go. That's you are now free to come and be honored by me. See, now God joyfully delights in you and says to you, with you, I am well pleased, just as he feels about his own son, Jesus. You know, but what about our ongoing sin, Rex? You know, all of us in this room struggle to some degree with guilt. You know, some of us struggle with deep guilt from past failure or from habitual sin that you struggle with again and again and again. In this past week, because of what's happened in the past or ongoing struggles, deep guilt follows you around like your shadow. For all of us, I'm sure there's at least this low-grade guilt that lingers in your conscience. Because you and I know that we constantly fail to measure up as the workers, as the friends, as the spouses, as the parents, as the church leaders that we need to be. And so there's this low-level guilt of constantly failing in these ways. Or for some of you, perhaps, you've become just so 
tired of your guilt, that you've just become numb to it all. You try to do all kinds of things to just forget about your guilt, get away from your guilt. And all these things, no matter what level of guilt you feel, keeps you distant from God. You withdraw from God. And surely, because of our ongoing sin, our ongoing failures, God's favor, God's heart towards you tires, right? The Apostle Paul says, not one bit. Not one bit. In verse 2 it says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, you don't go in and out of God's favor like you might with a hard-to-please boss. Or, you know, some of us have had strict parents, a severe dad, a tiger mom. Or a moody spouse. Or a hot, cold friend where it's like your status with them changes week by week. You don't fall in and out of God's favor like that. You stand firmly in his grace. Even on your worst days, just as much as on your best days. And again, it is your justification that secures this unchanging grace status for you. If you know... 1 John 1, 9, that verse, what does it say? It says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and, what? Just to forgive us our sin. Now, when I first read that verse long ago, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I would have expected that verse to say, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and maybe gracious, maybe merciful, maybe loving to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it says, God is faithful and just. Do you, do you understand what that's saying? It's saying that if God doesn't forgive you of your sin, he would be unjust in doing so. Ever think of it like that? Why is that the case? It's because if Jesus has fully taken your deserved punishment and condemnation for all your sin in the cross than for God to condemn you to punish you for any of your sin would be prosecuting the same offense twice. You know what that is called legally speaking? That's double jeopardy. And that's illegal. That would be invalidating the debt that Jesus fully paid for you. And so for him to honor, for God to honor what Jesus paid for, he must forgive your sin. Otherwise he'd be unjust. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling any guilt, you're weighed down by guilt. Perhaps of your failings from this past week perhaps from last night, any doubt at all of God's unceasing forgiveness towards you, that you are fully reconciled to him, that you're at peace with him, 
And would you take a hold of the truth of your justification, of your reconciliation this morning with God? Would you cry, dare I say, injustice if God is anything less than delighted in you? Be assured of the standing that you have with God in your heart and rejoice. Okay, let's move on secondly to we rejoice in our hope. In the second half of verse 2, we see another astounding benefit of our justification in a phrase that's really easy to gloss over. Paul says there, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I love how Paul, he does this a lot. He packs in a universe of truth in little unassuming sentences like these. Now, what what do I want us to see in this sentence here, packed full of truth? First thing is that the hope spoken of here is completely different than the world's hope. The difference is in how the word hope is used. Now, what do you typically mean when you say hope, when you use the word hope? You know, recently it was uh, match day for you know, med school, a lot of the med school students in, in our church. So I hope that I match my top choice residency. For you Villanova guys, I hope that Nova makes the final four. You Philly fans who've checked off the Eagles off your bucket list, what's next? I hope that LeBron James comes to Philly and the Sixers complete the process. Hope meaning I wish. I hope that. You know, we all know to some degree the pain of dashed or should I say dashed wishes, because that's the world sense of the word. We all know what it's like to feel things like, you know, I thought I would enjoy and thrive in this job, in this career that I chose. It hasn't turned out the way that I wanted. Or I thought I'd be married and have kids by now. Or, how did marriage end up being this hard and painful? Or, why are my kids so difficult to handle and raise? See, these things and more is often the major source of what makes us unhappy in our lives. Even to the point of despair for some of us, depression. We've been in bouts of depression because of dashed wishes. In the midst of a world, a life of dashed hopes and hopelessness, do you see what justification brings to the Christian? It removes all uncertainty. It removes all wishing from your hoping. What does the Bible mean? What does this verse mean by the word hope? Not wishful hope, but a certain 
hope. Not I hope that, but I absolutely, with 100% certainty, hope in. It's a sure hope that the very best is coming to us and nothing can take it away. It's only this kind of sure hope that can sustain you with joy, with confidence, when things don't turn out the way that you wish. And what, according to this verse, verse 2, is the specific object of our hope? What is it that we're hoping in? Not wishfully, but with certainty. It's the glory of God. The radiant splendor of all that God is in his perfections, which will be revealed in heaven. We hope in the glory of God. Now, I know this is an abstract concept. Like, that's kind of just vague, right? I wish I had the time. It kind of pains me not to be able to unpack fully with this rich truth of the glory of God conveys because it conveys so many things. But let me just put it like this simply. All the yearnings of the human heart, all the longings, all the hopes, all the dreams that you have are found and realized in the glory of God. There's nothing else that you really need. If you do a survey of the book of Romans, you'll get a glimpse of what this hope of the glory of God entails. I'm going to just give you a sampling. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if you remember back in chapter 1, we talked about sin, our descent in sin, in misery. And what was the root cause of that sin? We committed a dark exchange. We exchanged what? The glory of God for the glory of created things, idols of all kinds. But now through the gospel, we are remade to now savor the glory of God again in the way that we were made. And one day, soon enough, we will savor and enjoy the glory of God without any hindrance forever. What else does the glory of God mean? Well, when we fell in sin, what did Romans 3.23 say? We all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. We were made in the image of God to reflect the beauty of God's character in the world. And when we fell in sin, that image was broken, was marred. But now through the gospel, we are being remade back into that beautiful image, restored to that glory, and one day that process will be complete. When we get to chapter 8, verse 30, we'll see. For all whom God has called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Part of our hope of the glory of God is that we will be glorified in this sense. And what else? All of creation, this whole world is awaiting the day 
when chapter 8, verse 21, it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. On that day, when all of creation, when all that is miserable and painful in this world and in our lives, when all that's rid of, when all of God's creation is renewed and filled with the glory of God, we will share in that world. And we will know evil and pain no more forever. All these things and more are included in our hope of the glory of God. So if you think about that, what else do you really need? What do you lack for? Having this hope. Nothing. So if you rest in this hope, if you anchor your life to this sure hope, not the earthly hopes that often don't get fulfilled, you can live in confident joy no matter what, knowing that your best is surely to come. Now lastly, let's turn to we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering. So we've seen the peace that we have with God. We see the hope that we have with God, all because of our justification, it all sounds nice and sublime. But then you might ask, as probably some of the believers here in the church in Rome did, but what about our suffering? What about the worst moments of our lives? What about our worst pain? Doesn't our suffering rob us of our peace and our hope? That's why Paul here says, no. Justification has dramatically changed even your suffering so that you view your suffering and relate to it differently. In verse 3, what does Paul go on to say? He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, let's not take this the wrong way. Let's understand exactly what Paul is meaning here. He's not advocating stoicism, meaning you're unemotional, unmoved, unfazed by suffering in your life, right? That you're not supposed to shed tears, that you're not supposed to, you're supposed to just easily rise above all that you go through. That's not what we see in the Bible. That's not what we see in the, in the book of Psalms, say. So this is not stoicism that Paul is saying here, nor is this masochism. Paul doesn't say we rejoice about or for our suffering. This is not some grotesque way of rejoicing at what we suffer, like, yay, I am terminally ill. That's not what Paul is saying. That's evil and grotesque to have, have that kind of philosophy of life. Now, Paul also, on the flip side, isn't saying we rejoice despite our 
suffering. But here he says, genuinely, we rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Why? Because your suffering, by God's sovereign hand, his wisdom, his love, makes you better off in the end. That's why, like Paul, you can rejoice in it. You can boast in it. Remember, this again is the result of your justification. That your suffering is not punishment from God ever. But it's only ever redemption. Him using it to redeem you. To benefit you. And your heart needs to be assured of that. You know, over the years as a pastor... You know, one of the things that has burdened me so much is trying to minister to people in the worst moments of their life. When they're grieving, when they're in a dark, hopeless pit. And even for the best of saints, when they're suffering, when there's pain, no matter how they might know the gospel in their minds, doubts creep into their hearts. And they have questions for me, saying, Pastor, is what I'm going through because God is angry with me? Is what I'm going through because God has just forgotten about me? That he doesn't care about me? Did I do something wrong to deserve this? Am I something wrong? That I'm going through this? Is this God penalizing me for what I did or didn't do? Questions like these. You see down here at the ground level, when you're in the midst of life storms, life nor'easters, right? We have four of those in this month. All you see with your visible eyes are those dark and heavy clouds. And those clouds seem like God's anger towards you. But it's in those times that you need to lift up your eyes of faith. To see that always behind and beyond those dark clouds of life storms is the bright, shining sun of God's favor whose rays always reaches you and touches you no matter how turbulent your life is. You need to exercise your faith to see that the sun of God's favor upon you is always there, always constant behind those dark clouds and to lay hold of Now, what is it that suffering actually does for us in our lives? Well, Paul spells it out here, step by step. So we'll go through it real quick. What do we see suffering does for us? First, suffering produces endurance. Now, we don't think about endurance much, but oh, how we need endurance and perseverance in our lives. 
Do you know that it requires trials of all kinds to really show, to demonstrate, to prove that you are a follower of Christ? Think about Jesus' parable of the sower. Remember that parable? Remember that story where God the sower scatters his seed and goes to the different soils and you have the rocky soil? What happens with the rocky soil? plant comes up very quickly, sprouts up, but just as quickly as it sprouts up, it quickly dies and shrivels up. What does that symbolize? That trouble comes. And those who initially seem to follow Jesus, as soon as that trouble hits, they fall away from him. They weren't able to last the test of trial. If you're one who can go through trials right? Follow through and keep at it with God. Stay faithful over the long haul. That's how you grow in necessary endurance, without which you will not finish the marathon of this Christian life and at the end of this race receive the prize of God's glory. You need to make it to the end. And how are you going to make it to the end? Not by being an adrenaline Christian, the sprinting here once you're there, you need to have endurance to last to the end. And that's what suffering produces in you. Not ease, not prosperity, suffering. Then secondly, endurance produces character. What's character? Godly character. Who you are, not only in public before the eyes of others, which is easy to do, but in private when no one's looking. The character of loving God and loving others. The character, we could also say, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. And how does character grow and develop in our lives? Not like a chia pet. You guys know what a chia pet is? But you college guys don't even know what a chia pet is, right? What is that? You just add some water, and in a matter of days, if not hours, ch-ch-ch-chia. You get your instant plant. You get your instant animal, and it sprouts, right? That's what everything in this day is about, insta-this, insta-that, insta-grow. Is that how character grows? No. The fruit of the Spirit grows through your enduring, day in, day out, year in, Pursuing God. That's how you grow the fruit of the Spirit. You develop in godly character. So endurance produces character. And then lastly, character produces hope. Now this is the link in the chain that is hard to understand, hard to grasp. I have to think about this a lot. What does it mean that character, growing in character, produces hope in your life? But we say character involves growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And I think the focus of this passage is growing in the fruit of joy. We've been talking about joy. Joy in God. Joy in our hope. Joy in the midst of suffering. Well, if you're growing in godly character and in that fruit specifically of joy, if you're able to have joy in the midst of even the worst moments of your life, you know what that's probably demonstrating? That your hope is anchored in heaven and not in the things of this world. 
down in the things of life. And for those whose hope is anchored in God, in heaven, and not in the circumstances of this life, when suffering comes, you know what happens? When suffering comes and your earthly hopes, your earthly wishes are stripped from you, it doesn't crush you. It doesn't devastate you. What it does is it actually, as your earthly wishes are stripped from you, it drives you more deeply into your one sure hope in God, the heavenly hope of the glory of God. It produces more hope in that one certain future reality of yours. That's what growing in character does. For those whose hope is in the things of this world, that you bank on your life going a certain way, if your hope is not anchored in heaven, what happens when suffering comes? And those wishes get stripped from you. It crushes you. It devastates you. And sadly, I've seen people that have not recovered from when suffering has come. And often those people get hardened toward God and want to have nothing to do with him. When the fire of suffering comes, they get burned up. But for those who are justified, and if you're growing to have your hope anchored in heaven, not the things of the world, fire doesn't burn you up. You know what it does? It refines you just like gold gets refined in the fire to 24 karat purity. Gold refines you and it refines your hope. It drives you deeper into all that you have in God. That's how more hope is produced as character grows. Prosperity and ease does not produce any of this. As the late Billy Graham who just recently passed. He once wrote, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit, the fruit of suffering, leading to endurance, leading to character, leading to hope. Fruit is grown in the valleys, in the hard times. And that's what God does beautifully in you if you hold on to him. You know, as I was studying this passage, preparing, I thought of this wonderful woman of God, Nancy Guthrie. She's a powerful Bible teacher. She has a writing ministry, written a lot of books. I commend those books to you. A lot of her, a lot of her ministry has been shaped by the heartbreaking suffering that she has had to go through. Her and her husband, David, gave birth to their second child, a daughter. And upon birth, they discovered with deep anguish that something was terribly wrong with the baby. The baby was born with a rare genetic metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. Many of her basic functions were not working. And they were told that she would not make it to her first birthday. 
She ended up living six precious months. And her name of all things was Hope. Now that's not all. Because this meant that both parents, they were both carriers of the recessive gene trait for this syndrome. They decided to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. But for whatever reason, those surgical steps didn't work. And to their shock, a year and a half after Hope died, Nancy became pregnant again, this time with a son. And this son that they named Gabriel was also born in Zellweger Syndrome. And he lived only six precious There are so many tears, so much grief, so much to process. And the disappointment was very real. And you know, they would testify that there was blessing and even a sober joy in these two precious short-lived lives. And this is what Nancy said in an interview some years later after grappling and processing all this and learning the real hope that she has in her life. And this is what she said. She said, I think everybody who goes through any kind of loss or struggle asks the question, why? David, my husband, read one of Philip Yancey's books and it really helped us during this time. In his book, he changed the question, why? To what cause this? To what end? Or we would say for what purpose? So I think we went through this experience and came out of it with a desire to find God's purpose in it. What is it you want to do in us and through us that will require this kind of loss? How can we be part of what you want to do? that we do believe is good rather than feel like we're victims or rather than simmer in a sense of tragedy. But I would also say that that question why was very significant in our lives because it did drive us to the Bible to get an answer. I think that so many people run to all different sources to try and get an answer to why. They look in, they look out, <clears throat> and that search has sent us to the Bible. And it did something in me that has been very significant for all the years since then, which is to come to a deeper understanding of Genesis 3. We look for all of these very personal, individualistic answers to the question why. And here's the reason why. That the curse has so infiltrated this world that it has impacted all of creation. It has infiltrated even our genetic code so that our genes don't work right. That's why we sing with such great joy. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's from Joy to the World, a Christmas carol. That's what real hope is. Hope isn't what I'm going to get 
in this present life, everything I want my life to be. Instead, hope is that Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. There will be no more death. There will be no more curse. So that's how going to the Bible has helped with that question of why. And then to come to Genesis 3 and to grow in the sense of our understanding of God's purposes that he is working out in the world and that we get ushered into instead of trying to bend it to be all about me in the here and now. Instead, it's helped me to see how we're to be a part of what God is doing in the world and that the day is coming when the curse will be gone for good. That's our sure hope of the glory of God. And even our suffering produces more of that hope if we would have faith. Now lastly, just one last thing quickly to observe. And the point of the rest of the verses in this passage, 6 to 10. What Paul wants to do is he wants to give you the absolute deepest assurance that God always loves you no matter what, no matter what you go through. As if telling you about your peace that you have, about the hope that you have, even if you're suffering, as if that weren't enough. What is the deepest assurance that you have? What is the thing that you can always look to and know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God always loves you, will always be faithful to you, no matter what. And it's what we're going to remember when we're going to celebrate this coming week. And that's the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul says, forget the extent of God's love for you there. And never doubt again. Because in these verses it says, when is it, when was it that Jesus laid down his life for you? It was when you were weak, verse 6. It was when you were ungodly. It's when you were his enemies. Is when he laid down his life for you. Paul says, you know, it's very rare that a person will lay down his life even for a loved one, someone that you care for. And I think about this man, Aaron Faze. You know, a month ago, he was a football coach at Majority Stoneman High School in Parkland, Florida, on that absolutely horrific day of that mass shooting. And that hero, he stood in front of three female students and he took the bullets and he saved those three girls' lives, laying his life down for them. You know what Paul is saying here? Jesus' love for you is infinitely greater than that unbelievable sacrificial act. Why? Because he didn't lay down his life for you while you were his student. He laid down his life for you while you were the shooter. 
he stood in front of us and took our bullets when we were the shooter, when we were his enemies. Christ laid down his life for us. Do you think Jim and Denise Taylor, having forgiven Ronnie Fields when he was their enemy, would they now refuse him, refuse to meet a need of his now that he is their friend? Paul is saying that this is what Jesus was willing to do for you when you were hostile to him. Don't you ever doubt today until the end that God will not fully love you, be faithful to you, provide for you, help you, and save you to the uttermost. Be filled with joy because of the peace that you have with God, because of the sure hope you have in God, because even of what the worst things in your life can do for you. You stand up this morning and look at it. Let's pray. Shall we stand? Let me give us a few moments here to. Bring any of our guilt, any of our doubts that we have this morning. That God is anything less than delighted in you because of your justification before him by grace. We sang earlier in the service, preach the gospel to yourself. Let's do that right now as we go to the Lord. Let's lay hold of, in a fresh way, with eyes of faith, the truth that we just spelled out here that we saw in this passage. Perhaps you're one of those that's in a season of pain season of being really disappointed that a wish of yours hasn't gone your way. Well, maybe that's a reminder for you that that's not where your hope is found. Your hope is anchored to the glory of God in heaven. And if it's anchored and rooted in that, then your joy not have to change. You do not have to be utterly devastated. In fact, as you hold on to God, that disappointment can press you more deeply into the hope that you have. So let's spend a few moments bringing these truths into our hearts. And may we walk out of here this day more deeply confident, secure, happy people. 
How can we be not if this is all true of us and our justification? Let's pray. Father, we are humble and speechless as we remember how you have lavished us with grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, benefit upon benefit through your son Jesus. How we stand here firmly, secure in your unchanging grace. That no matter what our life feels like, whether we feel that there are dark, stormy clouds above our heads, we know that the sun of your favor is shining down on us and touching us. And so we can rejoice. So, Lord, we trust in you. We hope in you. We love you. And we worship you. And we sing to you now. sing this last song together, a song that we know so very well. Hopefully through this passage, it helps us to understand more richly what we sing. So let's worship our God.